Hello, listeners. I hope you're enjoying our conversation about the consolation of philosophy. As I mentioned on the first episode, I wish I had engaged with this text as a younger man. We have an opportunity for your students to do just that. Do you have a student who enjoys wrestling with ideas? Do they desire to know whether luck, fame, money, or power will make them happy? Circe Online Academy has just the course, Loving the Lovely, Boethius, the Constellation of Philosophy Summer Course. This summer, beginning in May, Circe Certified Master Teacher Jacob Bouvier will join students in reading Boethius, the Constellation of Philosophy. Through the dialogue of Lady Philosophy and Boethius, for eight weeks, students can discuss timeless questions and search for answers. Seats are limited, so be sure to register for this student summer online course today on circeinstitute.org. Now on to this week's episode. Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined again by Matt Bianco and Andrew Lipinski for our penultimate discussion on Boethius. Uh, today we wrap up the text with book five, and then we just have the Q&A left. How are you guys doing today? Great. London. We got it all figured out now, right? We finished Boethius, so you're good to go. No, no, no. Yeah, I was totally consoled. Totally consoled. <laughs> I uh, got consoled yesterday because my neighbor offered to plant Korean lettuce in my backyard. You have... Um, that sounds invasive. No, it's fabulous. <laughs> it's, it's not I invasive. That, that, was, I, that was just a plant joke, not a Korean joke, just for the record. <laughs> just for the record. <laughs> oh, no, that's what I heard. <laughs> Yeah, I, I assume it's because you live in North Carolina and you live with kudzu, so that's why that you made that joke. Yeah. But you can yeah. eat Korean lettuce, whereas kudzu, not so much. So there you go. Right, right. He's offering to feed me. So he Excellent. said, may I have permanent permission to go into your backyard anytime? I said, you have permanent permission to go into my backyard anytime if you're going to be adding plants to my yard. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. He ran out of space in his yard and he needs places to work. So he took mine. Excellent. I want the food to start magically appearing in my backyard. Uh, Matt, why don't you give us our summary today for book five? Our narration. All right. I, I will do my best to not add too much color commentary, but <laughs> this was a hard, this was, this book was a little bit harder for me. So, yeah. um, okay. So she stops whenever she ends book four with the big poem. Yeah. Um, Book five starts out with telling us that she she stopped. She stopped talking. She gave that poem and then she stopped. And then he says, I want to talk about divine providence and free will and or chance. What is chance? Is chance, is there any such thing as chance? And she says, Well, hold on a second. This is gonna be a distraction and it's going to be exhausting and you're not going to have the energy to finish out this conversation. Mm -hmm. And then he assures her that that is not the case because the pursuit of wisdom is not an exhausting activity for him. It is a refreshing activity. So she says, I will accede to your request and we will go on. And then they talk about chance for a while. And the um, it's interesting because the conversation of chances, I mean, she's basically saying Aristotle got this right. Mm. Um, and they talk about chance. And then, you know, they go into a poem. She goes back into a poem, as she's wont to do. And the poem is also about chance. And then they um, then they move to the freedom of the will. And now he wants to talk about free will. And he, uh, he asks about it. She responds that men are free and then they move into the poem again and then when they come back he's like nah, i don't know for, for the foreknowledge thing messes up the freedom of the will you can't say that somebody's free their will is free if god sees that they're going to do it and and god knows before they do it that they're going to do it and that it necessarily has to come to pass the way he sees it because otherwise he would be wrong and he can't be wrong therefore that's actually causing the person to do it, blah, blah, blah. But this this section is interesting because, I mean, I, here's my color commentary that I'm not supposed to be providing. So I won't I won't provide color commentary. I want to say why it's interesting. I'll just say that the fact is the, the rest of this book is almost all him. He gives a lot of lengthy 
And right. gives a, he basically gives a speech defending his question and explaining his question about why pe- man's will can't actually be free. It's not really till the end of the book because then they go into a poem again. But then she comes out of that and says – and then responds. And that's actually the rest of the book. Um, she comes out of that, out of his long speeches and responds with – a long speech of her own on why the will is free. And it's, 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 it, she, she explains it by making a distinction between how one knows, do we know because of the thing we're viewing or do we know because of the way we're thinking and, or what we're, what's perceiving in that the, the, the power to know is not provided by the thing being observed, but by the thing doing the observing and she goes through these four categories of not knowing um, the sense, the imagination, thought, and an intellect. And that at whatever level you're knowing, whatever level you're, you're capable of knowing at, you can't ascend above that. Um, And so it would be difficult to understand how somebody knows at a higher level than you if you don't actually know at that higher level. So then they talk about that and then and then she explains then, like once he accepts that that's a reasonable distinction, then she explains how that actually answers the question of the freedom of the will and foreknowledge. Yeah. And then, um, and then, so then what providence looks like in that. And then it ends. And then it's like, okay, therefore, go be a good person because God's watching. And then that's it. <laughs> so there you go, book five. <laughs> Matt, thank you. I, you, I, you left me hanging, but like that was really well done. Thank you. And then it ends. And so, of course, I have my questions that I mentioned on the previous calls yeah. that are the previous shows that I want to know. Is this actually consoling? Um, is this actually is does philosophy actually provide consolation? Uh-huh. Um, of course, we want to understand this book itself. I mean, book five itself, but then like the overall yeah. argument. And then I actually added a new question last night when I finished, and I was like, "There's some question that remains unanswered, but I don't know what it is mm-hmm. because." She says, if we talk about this, we're going to go off track. Right. But did they never went back? So does she fulfill her promise? That was my question. Yeah. Does she, they never, I don't, I think there's something that still remains unanswered. Does but it? They never or, identified it because he got us distracted. Or is that why she, after he goes in circles for section three, poem three, to me, he just circles. Um, and then she regains control and never gives it back. He has one word in the last four sections. Well, four, five, six, three sections. He has the one word, no. That's it. She keeps control the rest of the time. And she doesn't end it with a story, right? I'm thinking of what I've learned, right? You can end it with a story. If they don't get it, then you embody it in a story. But she does, like, it's, it's I think, I'm going to hold on. Let me check on section five before I say this about section six. Yeah, I'm right. I think I'm right. Section six, the last section of this book is the only section in the entirety of this that doesn't have a, a set out poem by text. Mm. The only one that doesn't. So it's different. Um, and she takes over. But what I did is I looked at the last section. I noticed the last section. I put a bracket. Like, I wish everybody could see my book, right? I put a bracket on it. And I said something special in here. And I just sat with it. And I think that last section is chiastic. <laughs> Imagine that. And that, that's what I, I think that's where she hands it to him. You know, you know, what's interesting about that, that poem observation mm-hmm. is that the, in the whole, the, for the whole course of the book, you know, from two on, basically mm-hmm. a book starts with a prose and it ends with a poem. And within there, you have a, Pro section, poem section, pro section, poem section, pro section, poem section, pro section, you know. And they, my book even titles it um, for the sections, right? Section prose one, poem one, um, prose two, poem two, prose three, poem three, except book one. Right. Book one actually starts with a poem. Yep. And so it's poem one, prose one, yeah. poem two, prose two, yeah. or prose 
yeah, poem two, prose two, poem three, prose three, but it also ends with a poem. And that's where the switch makes. Right. That's where the switch makes starting with book two. Yeah. So if you actually counted out just the prose, the poem sections and the prose section Mm -hmm. by ending the whole book with a prose, it restores the pattern of poetry, prose, poetry, prose, poetry, prose, even though within books two through five, it's prose, poetry, prose, poetry, prose, poetry, and then prose. Right. I was so I didn't go back and look at the whole thing. To see that, I just re- I saw this happen. I went back and I saw book one starts in the opposite, like you said. I knew somewhere the transition happened, and I was going to go do that research. Thank you. Yeah. Does that mean there's a there's a matching number between po- poetry and prose sections? If I'm yeah, doing that math right in my head, complete. okay. Yeah, there's the exact same amount, right? Interesting. Yeah. But but book one book one is sandwiched with poems. Yeah. Book five is sandwiched with prose. Yeah. Oh. So that's and that's also two, three, chiastic in a way in in a yeah right yeah <laughs> interesting so you know the famous question to help uh, like an icebreaker question who do you want to if you could have a dinner party who would you have at your dinner party that's not alive mm-hmm. yeah and I, I don't know sometimes they limit you to two three one whatever right yeah Boethius just hit my list with book five <laughs> I was like that yeah. was it I need you to sit down and talk with me now. So I was gonna say Lady Philosophy, but sure, Boethius is good to you. I I don't think I can touch her. <laughs> I don't know that I can talk with her yet. I'm not ready. Fair enough. So you you mentioned a minute ago though when you started, when you first were responding to Matt, um, does she fulfill her does she fulfill her promise? Right. How, so how would you how would you state her she promise? Made a promise. Well, I don't think I'll let you I'll let her state her promise. Let her state it. Wrote the word promise in my margin when she did it. There it is. It's in, if you want to know, it's in book four, um, the first section, the first prose. And the right, like the two sentences before she goes into poem. She said, I will show you the path that will bring you back home. Okay. But like the full sentence, it's when we have run through all that I think we should clear out of the way beforehand, then. I will show you the path that will bring you back home. That's interesting because right. then, then it seems like she felt like they were there. Like she was just like, okay, we cleared everything out of the way at the beginning of this book. And he's like, no, 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 I've got more questions. <laughs> right. So that's worse to me. That's So she says that in book four, the first section of book four, the first section of book five, he breaks in is what mine calls it and asks his question about chance. And her response is, the promise I made is a debt I owe you. And I am ready to repay it, she said, and to open the way for you to regain your true home. But useful as it is to know about those other matters, they are somewhat aside from our proposed path. And I am afraid you may be so worn out by digressions that you will be unable to complete the journey. And I love what he says here. Oh, don't worry about that, I rejoined. It will be as good as a re- as a rest to be able to see the things which most delight me. And I wrote down candy. Like, are you picking candy for lunch? That's what it sounds like to me here. What? Why? It's good for me to just think to see the things that most delight me. I'm thinking of the del- the. That's that's where my head went. That the I want to tickle my ear on this thing and not stay on the path you have for me that's where my head went when i read it i kept going and reading with him hmm. yours was a different matt the, I, the way you gave your summary. have no fear for that it is rest to me to learn where learning brings delight so exquisite hmm. Yeah, I guess I just took that. I just took that as a truism, right? It is is restful to learn. Yeah, he wants to see the things that most delight him, and I don't like because she's just said the things you're asking for, um, are not on the path. No, why why do you say that? Why are you saying that he he wants to learn the things that delight him? That's what it says. Well, but he never used the word learn. It says C in ours to see the things that would most light me. So yeah. I wonder 
Oh, mine just says learning brings delight. Right. Ours doesn't say anything about that. Yeah. So right above, like, so when he breaks in and says, I want to talk about chance. And she says, I've made a promise to you. It's a debt I owe you. I'm ready to repay it uh, so that you can regain your true home. But But what you've said will take you aside from our proposed path. And I'm afraid. And he says, don't worry about that. Don't don't be afraid. It's good. It it will be as good as rest to be able to see the things which most delight me. It doesn't talk about learning. So I just Latin does. The Latin says the Latin says that it's 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 the learning that brings the delight. Thank you. So yeah, our translation must just be implying that the thing that most delights him is is philosophy, is is thinking, contemplating. Yeah, it's not. I mean, even the first half of the sentence communicates it is rest to me to learn. It's not. It's not the object of the of the lesson that's bringing delight or rest. It's the act that's bringing delight and rest. Yeah, ours doesn't set it up that way. So to me, her to me, she used very strong language. Yeah. In the middle of him breaking in and asking for chance, and him saying, "Don't worry," and then she follows it in our version when she says, "When he says, don't worry, um, delight me." That's how I was reading it. Don't worry, delight me. She says, "I will obey your wish." But I, I wonder if then this is if it if it if it's about learning being rest, uh, if this is an indication that that mm-hmm. some of the medicine's begun to work, right? He's he's coming back to his old self of someone who loves to contemplate these things and isn't isn't um they don't bring they are bringing despair, now they're bringing delight again. Because the next thing he says though, in, even in ours is at the same time, since your argument has stood firm on every side. And its trustworthiness mm-hmm. has remained undoubted. There need be no doubt about what comes next. So is he starting to say there, like, I know what, what's coming next on the path that the, the, the prompt in the prompt, you know, in the next thing you were going to talk to me about, but I have these other lingering questions that I want to, I want to work through them with you. Mm, thank you. I mean, I didn't see that until we were comparing our translation to Matt's, but yeah. Yeah, the problem is that she already said earlier in the book, the, the whole book, mm-hmm. that the um, – she already made a comment about the foreknowledge free will thing and about how that's something that people always want to talk about, but it's not really what's needed. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back to it, mm-hmm. and she doesn't really want to, but then he assures her that he can do it. And then he doesn't. I mean, then they don't go back. Right. I, I wonder if, if I, I wonder if what's happened is it's not consoling because she never actually gets to console him. Like he takes her off on this path, and then she says at the end, "Okay, we've answered those questions now," and then that's it. Like it's it's kind of like. It, it's kind of like the Meno, right? In Mino, Mino wants to know whether virtue can be taught. Socrates wants to know what virtue is. Mm-hmm. Socrates says, we can't answer your question until we answer my question. It's not possible. And then by the end of the dialogue, Mino says, let's just answer my question. Let's just assume that we know what virtue is and answer my question. And then Socrates says, Fine. If virtue is this kind of a thing, then look, it can't be taught. If virtue is this kind of thing, oh, look, it can't be taught. Virtue is this kind of thing, oh, look, it can't be taught. Basically, whatever, you know, oversimplifying it. And then it ends. And it's almost like Mino is unwilling to follow the course. And so Socrates just has to say, like you can't follow the course of study here to get the answer you need. I can't give you the answer without it. So I'm just going to tell you what you need to hear to be able to move on, you know? And then he gives him some advice, which is, which is not unlike the advice that she gave him in Boethius. Right. Right. So what I'm wondering is she knows that there's this question that has to be answered. Yeah. How do you know, but I want to answer this other question. And then she's like, fine, we're going to answer that question 
And then, then we're done because you're gone. You're not willing to go back to the other question. So how does she end this one though? Her, her last sentence and my translation says, and I love this, right? So he brings out necessity and she returns to it. She returns to it in my last sentence. But it's like I said, the last seven things that are said are pretty key. But the last sentence says, a great necessity is laid upon you. If you will be honest with yourself, a great necessity repeats to be good since you live in the sight of a judge who sees all things. So I think it's right there. He wasn't honest with himself because he came over there and he said, oh, don't worry about me. I got this. I can do this. What does yours say? Um, our hopes and prayers also are not fixed on God in vain, and when they are rightly directed, cannot fail of effect. Therefore, withstand vice, mm-hmm. practice virtue, mm-hmm. lift up your souls to right hopes, offer humble prayers to heaven. Great is the necessity of righteousness laid upon you if you will not hide it from yourselves, seeing that all your actions are done before the eyes of a judge who sees all things. Mm. Um, so that- it's like, it's like, the therefore, the therefore, for me, the therefore reads like, okay, based on the answers that I was able to give you, mm-hmm. the questions that I was able to answer, this is all that I can, this is, this is the advice that I can give you now. My advice is limited by the course of, conver- the course of the conversation. So in light of what you now know, this is what you should, this is how you should behave. And Socrates kind of ends Mino in the same way. It's like, um, it follows from this reasoning, Mino, that virtue appears to be present in those of us who may possess it as a gift from the gods. We shall have clear knowledge of this when, before we investigate how it comes to be present in men, we first try to find out what virtue in itself is. He's kind of reminding him, like, eh, we didn't do this thing that we should have done. And then he says, but now the time has come for me to go. You convince your guest friend Anitas here of these very things of which you have yourself been convinced in order that he may be more amenable. If you succeed, you will also confer a benefit upon the Athenians. So it's more like, it's more like in light of what we've just discovered, this is all I can tell you to go do. Like your, my advice to you is now go talk to your friend Anitas and see if you can help him. Um, rather than, you know, what, what advice he could have given had they actually answered the question, what is virtue? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I wonder if that's how this is ending. Like rather than her actually being able to say what he should do, had he completed the consolation, mm-hmm. she can only give him this advice because it's where he's, it's the limits he's placed on the conversation by having redirected it. Matt, do you, do you think there's a similar lingering question here? Like you said that the lingering question there is what is virtue that they never answered in, in that Plato dialogue? Can you, yeah. can you state a lingering question here? No, I mean, yeah, but not in a way that's helpful. All I can say is the lingering question is, um, how do I return to my native land? Yeah, what is the way home? Like, mm-hmm. hmm. And of course, what is the native land? There's an assumption, I think, in Boethius and in probably in us as readers that the native land is the place that he has been expelled from. His homeland is where his home is and his wife, right? But his native land might be where God is, mm-hmm. right? If the whole pursuit of happiness is to become divine, to become God. Yeah. That's his native land, right? Yeah. So that's where I think... I'm like, I'm not sure I agree with it, agree with it to you that, that she doesn't fulfill her promise that because he takes her off track. Um, I have a different way of reading it that might go along with you. So say, say yours okay. and then I'll, okay. I'll, I'll toss my idea. I, I think it still feels abrupt because everything up to this point has been this kind of very detailed, laborious answer for each, not laborious, but like very detailed question. Right. And in this and in this chapter, what we get is, or in this book, what we get is uh, Boethius's laborious argument for why free will and 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 providence can't exist in with each other. And she just kind of lets him ramble on that for a long time. 
Um, but like the first thing she says is, yeah, this is an old argument. <laughs> like this is, this is not new. Uh, and, and, um, I, I think she gets him to recognize that like what you're saying when you were giving your narration, Matt, that you, you are limited by the, the way that you can have knowledge. Uh, so you can't really understand how something above you has more knowledge. Right. And for created beings, the highest basically she gives is I think reason, right? We can, we can understand how animals have knowledge, but they can't understand how we have knowledge, but, but the act of reason allows us to acknowledge that in a way that the animals can't right the act the fact that we have reason allows us to acknowledge that the divine would have a way of knowing that we can't comprehend we can comprehend just enough to know that they have a that the divine has a different way of knowing um yeah what what andrew you know at cersei would here at cersei would always point out we we because we can know that analogically Right, right, right. We can't yeah, know yeah, right. God itself, but we can understand God analogically using our reason, which is interesting because every time she points out, every time she tries to explain God's way of knowing, she explains it analogically. She uses right. types and says, right. you got the man walking on the beach and the sun rising. Yeah, anyways. Yeah, so she, she's doing all those comparisons, right, that help us see, okay, by comparison, <laughs> God has a way of knowing that's greater than ours and we don't, we can't really grasp it. Um, and she gets him to us to agree to that, I think. And then, um, and then, and then she uses that to, to, to explain in particular this dynamic to the best that our reason can grasp it between, between free will and predestination and probably, you know, whatever these things that seem like they're, they're, uh, incompatible to us, but they're not because God doesn't see time chronologically, you know, all these things, right. We can't understand how he sees it, but he doesn't see it the same way we do. Um, and so, so in light of all that, and if the way, if the play, if the home really is uh, the eternal home in, in, with God, not not his homeland that he came from, um, physical homeland. Um, the, but right before with the last part we read, she starts off by saying, and since this is so, man's freedom of will remains inviolate and the law does not impose reward and punishment unfairly because the will is freed from all necessity. So she's not, she, she not only is capping off her free will argument, but she's cap, she's returning to the argument of, from the previous book of people receiving good and bad uh, unfairly, basically. Um, she's like put another layer on that through this argument. And it says God has foreknowledge and wait, rest. Wait, wait. How so? How so? Can you flesh um, that out a second? Yeah, yeah. She she kind of returned to it in the middle of here, talking about how another way people might say things are unfair is if you don't have if you don't have free will. If you don't have free will, then anything you oh. did, you shouldn't be punished for because how's that fair? You didn't have free will. Like you couldn't choose to do good or bad. You just did bad because that was predestined for you. So why should you get punishment? And she she kind of got it. She kind of tie, She kind of cuts that one off before he's even able to argue it basically um, in the middle of this. And, 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 and it's, it's got, forward? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, the, I'm sorry. I'm toward the end of, I'm at the very, I'm in the very last section, right before the part we were all just reading about what she tells him to do. It's like right mm-hmm. above that couple sentences. Uh, so for okay. us, it's on page like 168 at the bottom. And since this is so, man's freedom of will remains inviolate, and the law does not impose reward and punishment unfairly, because the will is free from all necessity. God has foreknowledge and rests a spectator from on high of all things, and as the ever-present eternity of his vision dispenses reward to the good and punishment to the bad, it adapts itself to the future quality of our actions. And then it goes into, hope is not placed in God in vain. And so, I think... um, I think what he wants and what we want is a, a, a platonic argument or a philosophical argument, right? That, that answers this question through, through our reason and what she says. And she, but she's reminding him, we just agreed that, that you can't understand it with human reason. So this is your, this is your hope for going. This is the way home. The way home is hope placed in God prayers made not in vain. Uh, avoiding vice and cultivating virtue because that's what you've been told to do 
lift up your mind to that right kind of hope and put forth humble prayers on high. A great necessity is laid upon you. If you will be honest with yourself, a great necessity to be good mm-hmm. since you live in the sight of a judge who sees all things. And so it's to live rightly in, in faith that, that God's knowledge is greater than yours. And, like, that's the only way home. You don't get to just know what God knows. Like, it's not the way it works. No. <laughs> well, I think I, that's much more developed than my um, my way of trying to save the save the book. Uh, especially because because you're connecting it back to those kind of earlier arguments. I like that a lot. Um, that's helpful because, because, but I think what I'm saying might fit with that because, or what I was thinking might fit with that because when he first breaks in, he says, um, one of the many, many difficulties, which beset the question of Providence is whether there's any chance at all. And then she says, I'm anxious to fulfill my promise completely and open to thee a way of return to thy native land. As for these matters, though very useful to know, they are removed, a little removed from the path of our design. And I fear lest aggression should fatigue thee, and thou shouldst find thyself unequal to completing the direct journey to our goal. And then you have the whole thing about learning being restful and delightful. Yeah. Um, so then she responds, to the, he asks the chance question, she responds to the chance question, and then they move to providence and free will and foreknowledge and all that stuff, right? Mm. And so what if what if it was just the chance question that was the digression? Mm. And that in that the free will and foreknowledge question was actually the return back to the right path. Mm. It's just that he in- initiated it, so we don't know for sure, instead of her mm. initiating it. Um, and then, and then you're, and then to your point, Ren, that right, then going through that part of the conversation does get us to the end. And it is, it is what, it is what we need to, so, 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 huh. so to connect it maybe to your argument a little bit is earlier on, he accepted that God was providentially doing everything right in the earlier book, book one. Um, but didn't know how, couldn't remember how, right? Then, then the, he then he starts seeing it as this system of, well, you know, God does, or fortune does, good things to good people, bad things to bad people. But then sometimes it's flipped, and why? And that's not fair. And then she then she moves to the point where it's no, no, no. Everything that God does is good for it's for the good of the person so even when it's bad no matter what state you're in good or bad if you if if something was received bad or perceived that it's bad right that's a perception issue so we that's where we got last call right or last show um and then and then but then that creates this problem now for him where i still can't go home because i don't understand how my behaviors and God's knowledge align, right? And so then that—that that is the final question that has to be answered to put all of this into the right perspective. That question right? seems correcting each of those things. God's in charge. Good and bad things happen, but it's all actually good. It's all for our good, and it doesn't eliminate our freedom, right? That that the predestination versus free will question seems more closely tied to the to what they were talking about before, which was which was good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people. Um, because though she comes back to it, that that might seem unfair if, it's pre, if there's predestination. Whereas chance does seem a little bit more kind of, not completely unrelated, but a digression, a rabbit trail off the off the main path, right? Yeah. So that's interesting. I didn't, I, and she doesn't spend as long on the chance thing. She kind of just knocks it out and and they move on. So that's that's possible. Super I mean, that, short digression, right? Right, right. That that <laughs> that reads structurally. That sounds like it makes sense, or looks like it makes sense. It's kind of funny too, because it's like we don't even really need to think about this because Aristotle already gave us the answer. Yeah, you know, you know, <laughs> you know this. I, and I didn't catch you. Yeah. You mentioned that in book one, 
she gets him to agree that God is in control of everything. Like he, that's one of her starting points with him, but he doesn't know how. And so this is another chiasm then, because this is she she's really getting into this is how, right? Huh. In the fifth book. So first and fifth. Mm-hmm. The only thing that pushes me back towards my first reading of it, though, mm-hmm. is just for, poetically speaking, mm-hmm. he makes he, the author, Boethius, mm-hmm. makes an allusion to to the Mino in the in song three, pro, poem three, yeah, which mine titles "Truths Paradoxes." <laughs> I titled it No Hope, No Prayer. <laughs> Mine had a title, so I just know what it It says, um, what, ah, this is about a little over a third of the way down, almost halfway down. Ah, then why burns man's restless mind, truth's hidden portals to unclose? Knows he already what he seeks? Why toil to seek it if he knows? Yet haply, if he knoweth not, why blindly seek he knows not what? Who for a good he knows not size? Who can an unknown end pursue how find? How even when haply found, hail that strange form he never knew? Or is it that man's inmost soul once knew each part Hmm. and knew the whole? Now... Though by fleshly vapors dimmed, not all forgot her visions past. For while the several parts are lost, to the one whole she cleaveth fast. Whence he who yearns the truth to find is neither sound of sight nor blind. For neither does he know in full, nor is he reft of knowledge quite. But holding still to what is left, he gropes in the uncertain light. And by the part that still survives, to win back all, he bravely strives. That's, that's, I mean, she just wrote a poem about the Mino. Like the whole <laughs> middle section, when they bring the slave boy into the conversation, mm-hmm. it's why they bring the slave boy into the conversation. Mino says, why would you, how can you possibly go in search of something you don't know? Because how would you know what it is when you find it? Yeah. You have to know what it is before you go looking for it. And Socrates says, but if you know what it is before you go looking for it, why would you go looking for it? That's the, that, that view of education is the worst possible view of education because it would inspire nobody to learn, nobody to pursue the truth. Right. There has to be this other thing. And there has to be something in us that will recognize it when we see it. And then that's what this poem is about. So because this poem is about that, it makes me think, literarily speaking, from Boethius's perspective, that he wa- that he wants us to see a parallel between philosophy, Lady Philosophy, and Boethius with Socrates and Mino, which then makes me wonder. It makes me wonder if my first reading is right that that Boethius is ending this conversation the way Mino ended the other one by answering the wrong question. This is why I want Boethius for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> find out right this is the otherwise i love i love your reading of it brandon i want to i want that to be the case it would be much more consoling if that were the case you know this poem's in in boethius's mouth though right not lady philosophies like the character yeah. boethius's mouth section three's poem is boethius's mouth okay the whole section is yeah, I mean, almost, right? Oh, you're probably right, because prose four starts with, then said she. Right. And if she had been just reciting the poem, she wouldn't have, it wouldn't say then said she, right? It would just, she continued or whatever. Right? Yeah, I mean, so for me, I section that section three, I, I section B, colon, because like he's the speaker, B, colon, no hope, no prayer. That's mm-hmm. what he determines. But so if it's- she corrects that at the end and strikes on it hard. Right. So if it's in his mouth, is it still then what I was suggesting that he, what he wants, he wants a, a Mino like a Plato like answer, right? Mm-hmm. Well, he wants to do what Mino didn't right? Keep going in a way mm-hmm. that he can, he can reason himself all the way to the answer um, and know what God knows. <laughs> um, it's mm-hmm. interesting. Yours didn't use the word God, but in the poem from mine, it says, 
when once the mind beheld the mind of God, did it both some and separate truths perceive? So, I mean, that's when it knew, like before it, when it could see the full form, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, so, so I wonder, is he still striving for that kind of, I can make the, the, the completely, the completely reasonable logical argument that answers the question. And well, her final answer for that is that there's a limit to that. And at some point, at some point it's, it's faith and prayer and obedience. Yeah. The only reference to God in the poem in mine and, and in the Latin mm-hmm. is at the very beginning. Why does a strange discordance break the ordered schemes? Fair harmony hath God decreed twixt truth and truth. There may such lasting warfare be that truth truths, each severally plain. We strive to reconcile in vain. That's the only reference to God in the poem, in the in mine or in the Latin. Yeah, yeah I think yours. I think if I was following yours, it's where yours uses the word soul. When once this, uh, I don't know. It's right after the asshole. That man's inmost soul once knew each part and knew the whole. Yeah, when once the mind beheld the mind of God, that it both some and separate truths perceive. So that's interesting. That why, why he would. Hmm. Take out the word soul. Our translator would t- not use the word soul, but would use the mind of God. Um, so, but it, 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 yeah, I think he's asking the. I think he's asking the question. Socrates asked right in the Mino. He's saying, you know, he's he wants to go. He wants to not do what Mino did. He wants to go along with Socrates, right? To the to to answer the questions the way Socrates wants to answer the questions. And I wonder, which is, which is to say, to reconcile these two truths, right? Or reconcile the. I need to know these two things so I can reconcile them. Whereas right. Mino is saying, I don't need to know this other thing. I just need to know this thing. And her ultimate ultimate answer is, you can't know these two things in the way that God knows them. Thus, reconcile them the way they're reconciling God. You can just know that there's a higher knowing than you have. <laughs> like that. That's that's as, that's that's all you get. I mean, that's the most you get, right? Um, which is better than most created things. That's you're at the top, but or uh, maybe or maybe you know one A and one B with the with the divine beings because it talks about their less encumbered in one part too. But um, but uh, and so the, so so Lady Philosophy's answer and the Christian's answer is slightly different than Plato's answer because it has a different under it has it has a more revealed understanding of the, of the divine. I don't know. That's, that's, that's my, that's my best defense for she, he does. Conclude the answer? <laughs> I think, said lady. I think mm-hmm. Plato's answer is like, you have to spend the time in that case, defining what virtue is knowing the thing mm-hmm. before you can talk about what you can do with the thing. Um, and in this case, he's trying to, he's trying to reconcile providence and foreknowledge and free will and he wants to know both in such a way and how they reconcile in such a way that he has no like it's it's completely knowable knowable to him and and i think lady philosophy's answer is yeah human reason can't do that (laughs) human reason can't see it you have to be outside of it and only god is outside of it Hmm. i mean she uses sight a lot and so I'm wondering, book one, did she do the same? In book one, we, we used a lot of storms analogy. Mm-hmm. The winds. In in those storm and winds analogies, if I remember, there was things where they they make it hard for you to see. Right, it's the mists of the clouds. It's the churned. It's yes. the churned water. Um, so yes. there is a lot of visual. It's it's things you can't see because your vision your vision has been blurred by something. And so in the in the sec, second section of this book five, she has a poem where she focuses on that, um, and it starts off about Homer. Homer sings with honeyed tongue how the brightly shining sun all things views and all things hears, and yet with rays too weak to pierce far within, he cannot see the bowels of earth or depths of sea. Right, so Homer sings of the sun, but can't see the deep. 
And then she talks about not so. The founder of the world to whose high gaze is all unfurled, matters dense solidity and cloudy night's obscurity. What is, what was, what is to be in one swift glance, his mind can see. Right? So God gazes into the deep and the dark. And then she closes it. All things by him alone are seen and him, the true son, we should deem. Right? So God should be deemed the true son. Right? We, he, she's trying there, I think, to like not Homer. Right? He can sing of a lot, but he doesn't have all, all knowledge. Hmm. God does. And so his like, goes back to God sees all. That's how she closes it. Yeah, I think I read that as the as Homer talks about the sun can see all basically or view all things right on the surface, but not below the surface. Like, and God can see below the surface. Right. God yeah. can see the surface and below the surface and in the dark and in the deep. And um, so like he knows all. So she. And that she closes with that, like she really mm-hmm. Boethius, the way he writes it, but in in Lady Philosophy's mouth, um, she ties everything back together here at the end. In the in the in song four, I think that happens too, because to, toward the end of the song, end of the poem, there was well, the the first half of the poem is about these people who think that the mind is a blank slate, which, which is to say that all of our knowledge comes only through experience mm-hmm. and which in the, you know, the previous poem that we read about the one I said is about Mino is, is about, no, no, there's something, there's a piece in us that we're remembering, right. That's that we, we remember. And the second half of the poem kind of gets into that. It said, well, it's not, it's further about two thirds of the way in. It says, of these ample potencies, fitter cause, I ween, were, were mind's self then marks impressed by the outer scene, which is the view that she's arguing against, right? That the mind only has in it what it's observed mm-hmm. in the world around it. Yet the body through the sense stirs the soul's intelligence. When light flashes on the eye, or sound strikes the ear, mind aroused to due response makes the message clear. And the dumb external signs with the hidden forms combines. The dumb so saying, say that so again. She, uh, the very last line. Yeah, well, that section and the dumb. Uh, and the dumb external signs with the hidden forms combines the mind combines the mind combines the what i see yeah so there's so there's something in my soul in my memory in my mind right yeah. and there's this thing that i'm observing and the mind is bringing those two things together yeah. my memory of the form or my knowledge of the form and the the physical world around me my experiences bringing them together um so in 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 Kant, <laughs> God, who wants to talk about Kant? <laughs> in Kant, there's this distinction between, or I mean, it's in other people too, but um, I think Aristotle talks about it as well. But uh, you know, whether we have a priori knowledge, which is means knowledge that we're born with, right, and then a posteriori knowledge, which is knowledge that we get mm. from life, right. And the first part of that poem, I think, is her arguing against the a posteriori only people. But there's also an argument against the a priori only people, right? That it's both. I have a priori knowledge that I'm born with, the law written upon my heart, to use the Christian expression, the biblical expression for it, right? And then I also observe these – I also observe these – the, the light flashes on the eye, the sound that strikes the ear, mm-hmm. the, the dumb external signs are brought. And I think dumb there for, probably means um, the external signs that don't themselves communicate their meaning yeah. until they're combined with the, with the form that I have already in me, right? Then that wow. gives meaning to this world and to the things of this world, the external signs of this world. 
I appreciate that. So could the answer be the road home at its core? I'm going to play with the chiasm of the last seven items of this whole thing. That the core is to avoid vice and cultivate virtue. How do you do that? Is the up and above it. Hope and prayer and things above on the things on high. What what surrounds that? Why why can we engage in that? What makes that possible? And and she says God dispenses rewards and punishments, and because of necessity, to be honest with yourself and to be good. Why? So what? For what purpose? Because God sees all is what she says above both of those. And you're suggesting that that's the what? That's the path home. I, I think if we're reading it with Brandon, right, that's the path home. Mm-hmm. And so if we think back through what we've just done with these la- those middle three poems, two by her, one by him, talking about vision and how we see being so important. And she ends it with, well, but God sees all in a way you can't, right? She doesn't say it exactly like that, but she brings it back to remind us God sees all. All, all, all. And that's not our place. We're to avoid vice and cultivate virtue. We are to hope and pray because they are effective and they need to be focused on high because God is the dispenser of rewards and punishment. Through a lens of necessity, we need to be honest with ourselves and be good. Because God sees all. Like, I'm just thinking, is that the road home? It probably is because you're talking about the, I mean, she's talking about this, like all the, all the words in this paragraph mm-hmm. have been explained and defined earlier in the text, right? In the right. conversation. Right. Uh, mine, mine says the whole paragraph reads, all, and all this being so, mm-hmm. the freedom of man's will stands unshaken, which that's all we, what we just yep. described, right? Right. We just explained the freedom of man's will. Yep. And laws are not unrighteous. Since their rewards and punishments are held forth to wills unbound by any necessity. Mm. So they're, it's it's not – again, there's freedom of the will. The, the will is not bound by any necessity. Right. Um, and the, therefore, the rewards and punishments are just. Mm-hmm. God, who, know it, who foreknows all things, still looks down from above. And we she defined foreknowledge, right? Yep. And it's in its, in its limits. Um looks down from above and the ever present eternity ever present eternity yeah right, that was part right, of we talked about that uh-huh of his vision concurs with the future character of all our acts and dispenseth to the good rewards to the bad punishments but even there that's been explained for us right. earlier in book 4 i think as and always for our good right gratitude is the pathway the crack of the door to allow yeah. god in our hopes mm-hmm. and prayers also are not fixed on God in vain, mm-hmm. and when they are rightly directed, cannot fail of effect. Right. Therefore, yeah. There, so I, I think it, I think maybe you're right. Maybe this is if we're reading it like Brandon. Mm-hmm. It's 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 interesting how hard Andrea and I have to work to um, bring ourselves to see what you just automatically saw when you read it, Brandon. So to be uh, fair, I read it. It's my second read. To be fair. <laughs> When we when we were talking about it at the beginning of the show, Brandon's like, "What? These guys read it completely wrong." <laughs> and this doesn't say anything. He just listens to us. He loves I, us. I thought you were going to say it's difficult for Andrea and I to enter the mind of Brandon. <laughs> it's a scary place. <laughs> but we have consolation now, so we can. <laughs> we have to avoid vice and cultivate virtue. How? Right. That was my question. How? It's hope and prayer. Yeah. And then lift up your souls to right hopes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's got to be a reference back to the gratitude, the re- per- perceiving all things as good, receiving them as good, yep. being thankful for them. Yep. And then does your necessity great is the necessity of righteousness, right? Because she defined necessity two different ways in this yep. book. And now she's using them in both of those ways in this paragraph. Bingo. Right? 
and a great necessity to be our says to be good. It's like yeah. that's that's how you and it's like, well, how do I be good? By being good. Like you, you like these aren't do the things you know are that are good to do. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, mine says practice virtue, yours says be good. Yeah. At the end there, the great yeah. necessity is to be good. Yeah. Since you live in the sight of a oh. dirt. Yeah. There. Mine says great is the necessity of righteousness. Yours says great is the necessity to be good. Yeah. 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 But it, and it's interesting, right? Because we, I think we often think, well, I have to learn or what it is to be righteous or, you know, I have to work to be right. Um, I have to work at being righteous or good. Um, but then, you know, we get things, you know, especially in the Old Testament, like he was righteous, like Abraham was right, was a righteous man, right? Like he was just doing what he knew he should do. And that's, he, he just gets he was called. avoiding vice and cultivating virtue. Right. He just gets called righteous, right? Because of the way he's living his life. And, mm-hmm. and, and going back to our earlier discussions about, about, people who um well maybe that wasn't this discussion maybe i'm no i'm conflating i'm conflating my conversation on the on the other podcast with christine about a poem but um like people who seem to have peace are people who are just they're just doing what they're supposed to do and so that and they they seem to have this deep peace right um that's hilarious how these are all kind of intertwining now because i just had a conversation with one of the guys in the office this morning where he was saying he, he, he was watching some video where the guy was saying that um, most of the stress that we experience in life is a result of inaction. So, and then the guy's, exa- the guy's example was your, it was yard work. The longer you put off yard work, mm-hmm. every time you come home, every time you go outside, every time you see it, it's stress, 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 stress. And you mm-hmm. just keep thinking about, I got to get that done. I got to get that done. And he said, but the moment you pick up the rake and actually start doing it, you feel better. Yeah. And yeah. when you're done, you feel great. But we yeah. always forget, we always forget the good that we feel from getting the work done. We postpone it. We delay it. We ignore it, and it just and it just becomes more and more and more stressful. And if you start compo- co- compounding that with additional things that you're ignoring or you're delaying, yeah. and you have 15, 20 things you're delaying, right? Then you're then it's you have inaction in all of those areas, and it's just creating stress and just the, the acting on on one of them, and then the next one and the next one will always be better. So even there's that passivity, right? That inaction that yeah is. The problem, yeah. There's been plenty of rain and warmth in my neck of the woods already. So I just keep going, man, that grass keeps getting taller. Like every day it's just taller than it was yesterday in the backyard. I have to go mow that. Yeah. I haven't. It's you're right. It's a point of stress. So she's gotta get that son back at home, man. So you can just have him do it. Right, I know. <laughs> Train up a daughter. I mowed my yard at seventh grade. I came home from summer vacation and I had a giant box in the living room that I had to open, unpack, and build. My lawnmower. Nice. In seventh box. grade? What? Seventh grade when I came home. That was my job. Did you have nice. any brothers? I'm the oldest child. Did you have any brothers? No. Uh, there you go. That's why. Once you have a brother, girls are off the table. It's always been that way. I mean, I make them do other things, but, you know, maybe we're just, maybe, maybe my household is more sexist than I think than I think it is. I had to carry my own suitcase. I had to mow my own yard. I had to change my own tire, pump my own gas. Yeah. If there had been a brother or a dad there, none of that would have been true. <laughs> nope. Start start training our uh, kids up with sites. They have to really work at it. That, that satisfaction. There's going to be all these comments now. Like, what are you talking about? I had brothers and I had a mozzle on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. My mom was a sexist then because that was never going to happen in my house growing up. And none of my cousins and nobody I know ever. I never I never met a girl that did any of that stuff unless she was brotherless. Mm-hmm. I had sisters and still had to do my own laundry. But I, I or my brother pretty much always mowed, mowed the lawn. So. I mean, I came from an all-girl household, yeah. and I've raised my sons in what was an all-boy household besides me. You know, so yeah. they've done a lot of things. But 
I guess I, we all did that in my first household. So we all do that in this household. All right. There you go. <laughs> so how's that consolation of this podcast? <laughs> we have cultivated virtue in our home. We have done <laughs> action. Go to action. Like we're, we were all responsible to act in this home. Yeah. I, I still think he would be a fascinating person to sit with. Yeah. I, I One of my blues was he said in the sixth, well, she said, Lady Philosophy says, in this life of today, you do not live more fully than in that fleeting and transitory moment. The present. Just be. Yeah. Right. Do the yard when you see it and it's brought your attention. Like, just go do it. That's kind of, um, that's kind of divinizing. What do you mean? Well, her definition of eternity was somebody in somebody for whom the eternal is something for for which all things past, present, and future are experienced in the present. It's right. a it's a it's a always present, huh. and so we can imitate God, the eternity of God, in that way by living in the present, right? By by acting now rather than delaying, postponing. It's almost. I don't know. Satanic? Is it? Too, am I going too far to say that procrastination is satanic and to act is to you know, to do when you're supposed to do it is divine? Well, I mean, if I believe that, then I'm gonna like have to go to confession often because <laughs> I do avoid. <laughs> yeah. Well, and me and, too. So I don't want to believe that truth, right? So if we just deny that and say no, that's wrong. That's not true. It's, it's just hard medicine, Andrea. It's just hard medicine. Remember, the whole book was hard medicine. <laughs> Matt's gonna Matt's gonna sing you a song though, so it goes down. So it goes down <laughs> sweet. The medicine. I'm ready about procrastination. Yeah, it's, it's it's the one from Mary Poppins where they have to clean up the room. That's that. It's that song. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the distinction, right? Though, like procrastination is specifically not doing it when you ought to it. Like that, there's a difference between that and and rest like not working because yeah. it's not the time for you to work right so yeah i have all to, right so what's the q a plan the q a plan is people can post questions on i'll put a post up on the circe circle spa, uh, space for overdue classics and people can post there um, or they can email us at podcast at circe uh, org, um and we will try our best to answer them and then maybe return to some of our own questions that we haven't answered yet. <laughs> so, uh, right. uh, like is going to bring a, um, a 30 minute presentation on the, uh, chiasms of consolation. It is yes. incredible. That's yeah. why I like, I mean it. I want to meet this man. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, uh, yeah. So that's the plan there. Um, and then we'll be on to Gilgamesh. Um, we, we, we are going to be using the same, I'll give a couple weeks, you know, more heads up on this. We are going to be using the same translation this time on Gilgamesh because the nature of that one makes it a little easier to talk about. I think if they're the same translation. Um, and so that, that, that one has been posted also on Circe circle. Um, but, um, the particular can, translation we're using. Yeah. It's kind of a big yeah. deal actually because the um there's like fragments of a Babylonian edition and an Akkadian edition and a Persian edition, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. All these different cultures and they're all fragments. Mm -hmm. And so different authors, different translators will take one one set of fragments as the base. And then fill in the gaps with fragments from other cultures. Right. But then another one will take a different culture's fragments as the base and then fill in the gaps. So if you read if you read two different translations, you're probably going to get two very, very different editions because they're going to be using different fragments and different as the base and different fragments to fill in the gap. And it, it, it can be a very, very different story. I mean, in the reading of it, in the particulars of the reading of it, yeah. it'll be the same story, I think, overall, but right. um, it'll be harder to follow along because they'll be like, why, why doesn't you have this yeah. you know, and, section or this line or this this part of the story in it? Right. And I think that that's, that's more true even of other myths like that we get from the ancient world than we, than we realize, I think, a lot of times. Like, there's different yeah. accounts 
of the Greek, the Greek myths and gods. Um, but, but we're even closer to that, right? Like we have more full accounts, right? So typically someone is translating a full account in those, whereas with this, it's an, it's an even older, these are even older manuscripts, um, that they're translating from. So pre, I guess, kind of Hellenistic period manuscripts. So, so yeah, so we chose one, um, that, that, uh, Matt had and liked and was familiar with. And so that would be a good one for us to, to go from. And it's a relatively um, uh, recent translation. So I think it's readable. It's pretty readable for for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of that one. So anyway, I'll post that in, I mean, I'll, I, it is posted in, in the circle, but I'll, I'll, I, I can go ahead and add the link here into the next week's Q&A too. So people can see what's coming up uh, for that. And on so. Bookshop, I linked all of our books that we're reading. Oh yes, page. thank you. Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll include that bookshop link um, uh, in the show notes, and I'll put a post up there on, for Circle on Circle Two because that's going to have not only the ones we've been reading so far, the ones we've read so far, but any future ones we'll be putting the editions. If we're especially if we're picking a particular edition, they'll be on there. So, um, and if you buy there, you, you you know you're helping independent bookstores and us a little bit and all that kind of stuff. So if that's if that's kind of your kind of your jam to help the independence over the, over the, the mega corporations. And that's a good spot for you. Um, so, um, yeah. Uh, Grant, I, I have to say this though, Matt, I've been holding my tongue because I don't you're like, you're not going to like this particular, this particular, um, uh, illusion. But as I was reading it, like, especially when I got to section three of this book and he's just kind of, if this and this and this, if it certainly is this, and you know, when he's talking about predestination, and the person who came to mind was uh Vincini in The Princess Bride when they're like, and there's the cups of poison, he's like, So certainly I cannot take the cup that's in front of you. And he's like, And that's just, I just got this guy who's just rambling like he knows everything, uh, in, the, in that midsection. <laughs> he's like, Yeah. So it's impossible that there could be free will, but then it's impossible. You could have four, that there could be foreknowledge and he's just like circling himself. So anyway, it's made me laugh, but then I thought Matt would hate that analogy. So, so let's say it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saved it. Yeah, so, we thanks, didn't, so I saved it so we didn't get too sidetracked by it. That's my, in my final thoughts. <laughs> well done. All right. Well, thank you guys again. This has been a lot of fun. Like I said, I loved reading this book last year, but really didn't have anybody to, discuss it much with i mean my my wife and my children had read it but they weren't reading it along with it at the same time so this has been a lot of fun and thank all of you for pulling it down again and, and uh dusting it off and joining us this week for Overly classics as you mentioned uh, you'll find a lot of things in the show notes links to the next book links to where we can you can join the conversation on circle and as well as the email address for sending questions uh and comments uh, for for our next episode where we will try to wrap up uh, Boethius and Constellation of Philosophy. Be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network. 